0: Hey there everybody, I'm back with another
1: episode of the Empathic Mastery Show and today I have a really interesting guest for you guys and I am so delighted to be bringing Nancy Orlin-Weber to the show. So Nancy's career as a nurse led her to discovery that her unusual gifts could help many. Nancy Orlin-Weber is a psychic detective and author who has worked as a consultant to law enforcement agencies for over 40 years. She has written a book titled The Life of a Psychic Detective, which is an autobiography that details her experiences and techniques for finding missing persons and evidence related to crimes. Weber has received endorsements from detectives she wor- that she worked with and has been featured in multiple television documentaries about her work, which continue to be shown worldwide. Her book also discusses her personal spiritual journey as a psychic and how it influenced her work as a consultant to law enforcement. Nancy's second book, All Nature Speaks, Conversations with Pets and Wildlife, is a book that celebrates the interconnectedness of all living beings and encourages readers to explore the idea of communicating with animals. The author, Nancy, shares her personal experiences of communicating with animals and how it has helped her to connect with nature in a deeper way.
2: Nancy, welcome. I am so excited to have you here today. Oh, Jen, I am so excited to be with you. I am so grateful. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, <gasps>
1: psychic detective. And um I'm like, I was just thinking of, um oh, goodness, that movie, was it Ace Ventura, psychic pet detective or something, you know? <laughs> Yeah. 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 Yeah, so like it's sort of you you kind of you ding all the boxes, you talk to the animals and you uh and you do this psychic work. But before we go into the this amazing conversation about where you know what you've been doing for the last 40 years, let's start with just what it was like you as a sensitive person, you as
2: an intuitive, you as a psychic. When did you first realize that you had psychic abilities? I didn't use that term because I was too young to know what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Or that it was different other than the response or reaction, I should say. Yes. Some people. So when I understood that the first time, the very first time was, I guess, well, the intuitive part. I was 10 months old and my high chair was gone. And I wondered what my mommy did with it and daddy and how come you had stopped feeding me. And, and so my intuition at that point was very strong because I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what it was, but it made me very uncomfortable. And I pretty much stopped eating. When I was about two, uh, my mother had a friend and they were talking and I could see them from my bedroom, a tiny little apartment. And I'm looking at the woman. I'm seeing something in her belly. And I'm thinking, what is it? And the being I had always seen since before birth or whatever, I called the man. I never named him at that point. And he said, oh, that's a baby. He would always be with me. And I didn't have words for this. So I waddled out and looked at the baby and thought, oh, that's so cute. And pointed at the belly and I went, Baby. And the woman looked at my mother and said, How does she know? I just found out and I haven't even been home to tell my husband. And my mother turned and said, Go to your room. Oh. The <gasps> funny part, though, is even though I heard her say that, I knew it was true. There was mm-hmm. a baby because the mm-hmm. man never lied. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I wasn't confused. I just thought, Okay, I'll go to my room. <laughs> and later I learned my mother got terrified of all of it. I understand that. But later, so I didn't name it psychic. I didn't name it um uh, mediumship. From the other side, somebody was telling me things. I didn't label anything for a very long time.
1: Well, you were so young. I mean, I'm also really struck by the fact that you have memories at the age of 10 months old because so many people, I mean, I'm sort of, did you just come in remembering? Were you like, yeah, uh, not, I I. I
2: my father used to say, How do you know those songs? I said, I was listening. He said, But they are before you were born. I said, mm. I was listening. So I I remember my birth and it's written up yeah. in a medical text. And I didn't know that. And when I finally described it to my mother, she was screaming, How do you know? And I said, I was there. <laughs> Just so like did you have a kid. complicated birth? Uh it was complicated because my mother had a bone over the cervix. Oh, my goodness. And she had given birth five and a half years prior to my sister, who I didn't know, came out with a crushed collarbone, head swollen, because they had to pull her through that bone part. Mm-hmm. But I had no clue. They never talked. They didn't talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Secret, everything was secret. Everything was a secret. Yeah. And so when I was about 27, I guess, on the phone, I said, Mom, why didn't you tell me that you had a bone over your cervix? She said, how the hell do you know?" She was Brooklyn. (laughs) How the hell? (laughs) He said, because I remember. She said, how do you, what? I said, well, I pushed back as I heard utensils and they frightened me, the metal. And I pushed way back and I smashed open your bone, didn't I? She said, you flew out and broke open the bone. Yes, it's written up in a medical text. I said, well, that's how I got out and that's why I hate being late to anything. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. i figured it's a brain pattern you know it's a very strong imprint and that and i realized when i discovered why i'd be so nervous if i was two minutes late anywhere mm-hmm. if i was on time it was okay but i have to be early early yeah yeah And that's a birth imprint because i've studied it with other people and found yeah you, That. That imprint's pretty strong. My birth imprint
1: is almost the opposite in that I was three weeks early, and I've been making up for it ever
2: since. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just <laughs> yeah. Responds to our conditions. It's amazing. Well, and
1: I actually so so it sounds like um, you did not experience. Any, like it does, it sounds like you, you found your way through it. There wasn't necessarily any complications for you. Did your mom, was your mom, um, did Hmm. she, I'm trying to think of how to, did she have any kind of like, was it threatening for her? Was, did she have any issues? Like,
2: was, did the spirits come? (laughs) Uh, the only thing I do know is when she moved to Brooklyn with her husband before, I guess, both of us were born. I don't know. I don't know when this happened, but I do know that in the middle of the night, she woke up and called her aunt in New Hampshire. Her mother mm-hmm. lived in New Hampshire with her stepfather. And she said to her aunt, Becky and Joe just went over a cliff in a car. You have to go get them. on And she knew the place. So she mentioned the mountain, they went off. And her aunt said, where are you calling from? And she said, Brooklyn. She said, You're in your bed, go to sleep. She said, No, you have to look. I'm telling you. Now, a little town called Laconia at the time was totally tiny, no. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's where they all settled uh, on the maternal side. So she went over, my aunt, uh, my great aunt went over to the house. Now, they never left the home after 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. The car was not there and it was 1 a.m. So mm-hmm. she called the police, told them what was told her, didn't say how she knew, and they were over the cliff and she saved their life. Ah, oh. mother hated it. She loved her mother, but she was terrified to ever go near this again. So she had so she had abilities, but she basically pushed oh, yeah. them pushed them down. Oh, one of the reasons is.
1: Yeah. One of the reasons I was asking you that about your birth is that um, my mom, my birth was a fairly complicated birth and my mom, um, near my mom had a near death experience giving birth to me where she bled out. And mm-hmm. one of the things I've actually wondered about is whether these kinds of precarious birth experiences where the veil, between, like the door between okay. the living and dead, it's kind of like the door is swinging both ways. Like you're being born, but there's also death, you know, like somebody's coming in and another one's going out. I've always wondered if that may be one of the factors that contributes to why some of us are a lot more sensitive than other people are. So, you know, the fact that you had a complicated birth makes me wonder if that may be um something that amplifies your abilities or your gift.
2: I'm not sure, but there's a new research going on and I can send uh you some information because off the cuff, I can't say they're looking for funding, they work top of the line on brain studies about psychics. Mm, right. Wow. And they're looking for funding to do some more research. And they just you know, interviewed me and sent me some papers to sign. And we'll see. So I can send that over because I think it's a curious thing. It is a curious thing. Yeah. Uh, for you to bring up because they may enjoy hearing that too. I do believe not only birth patterns, but anything in utero. You know, we know so much. Now, We back when I studied nursing, and they would say something about the placenta is a barrier, and I laughed. I said, yeah, right. It's not made of stainless steel, folks. (laughs) It's a leaky barrier, call it. I prefer the pineal body. Oh, it's sitting in the brain because it doesn't do anything? It's a ductless gland. It's got to be something. It's a gland well, we don't know yet. I said, yes, you do. You just don't have the research at your fingertips because they didn't let it out yet. But it's certainly not just something like they call the appendix an extra little thing. right? I doubt it. We just don't know the usage. We yet. just
1: don't know the usage yet. But the
2: Easterners exactly. all knew it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Fear, I always think trauma, fear, I was uh, five months pregnant when my first husband uh, attempted to murder me, and mm-hmm. I knew that it would impact my daughter trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I purposely did a lot of different things to calm everything down yeah. on my end of safety for her yeah. and safety for me. Absolutely. And sing to her every day. It was in old San Juan, Puerto Rico. It was a beautiful area. And I would take her out across the street, where the first port when you come into Old San Juan. I lived right across the street, and I would look out the ocean, and I would breathe in the light, and breathe in the light, and send it to her like rainbows, and had a great time, and would totally wall off and know that I could kill and at this point, <laughs> but I knew probably wouldn't go through with it. But I know how to take care of us. Yeah, Only I knew the impact could bring about a genetic something, yes, whatever. And so Mm -hmm. what you're saying opens up this whole territory of research that I don't know how much of it is done before. So I'm making a note because I'm sending you this wonderful man, brilliant man uh, to talk with you. And you can mention what you're thinking about it Mm -hmm, because I mm -hmm. don't know now. That's a good one. Yeah.
1: Well, and it's just it's one of those things where it's like it's I've been having all these conversations with all these sensitive people. It's kind of like, huh, you know, because I my personal theory about one of the reasons why it's sort of like my grandmother, like my great not my grandmother, my great grandmother, who I was actually my middle name is after her. She showed up when my mom was giving birth to me. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's I feel like I basically came in through the personally, I feel like I came in through the outdoor and um, I also did not come, I did not have the amnesia that most people have. Like, so I remembered who I was in other lives. I remembered my experiences. So while I don't necessarily have vivid recall of the period, like, yeah, I would say from infancy, like post birth, like I have recall you know enter, i can I can recall pieces of birth, but then there's sort of the period of just like infancy where I don't necessarily have a lot of solid memories of that period, but I definitely could remember prior to birth and and other mm-hmm. things like that. So I love it, it would be really interesting actually, in some ways to think about what's the correlation between memory and psychic ability as well. Oh, sure. Because, you know, it seems like there is sort of a, obviously you have this incredible ability. So going back to the story, so obviously, like you figured you didn't even know what was going on. You, you just took it for granted because it was just the way things were. But you started noticing that the way people were responding to you was, was a place of fear, was a place of like, oh. mm-hmm,
2: you know, the don't do closest. that. Right. Yeah. What's particularly my mother. Yeah. Others didn't make comments. My father never said a word. Mm-hmm. I had no mm-hmm. clue. Yeah. He wouldn't talk about it. My sister wouldn't talk. So, and I never brought it up because what's to bring up? Not until I was a bit older and what I noticed, you know, I think uh <laughs> psychics who have a great deal of sensitivity and, and empathy, we're what we call mother confessors mm-hmm. or father confessors. Mm-hmm. Strangers mm-hmm. come over, tell you the life story cry with you, hug you, right? Yeah. Yes. And that tells us about a different view of what we are. and And so it didn't mesh with what I saw at home, but that's okay. I was a rebel because of things that happened at home and did not trust my parents over some things that happened to protect me and keep me safe. And so that was fine. I could be a rebel. <laughs> so my view... Was, I was good. Even if I wasn't, I was still good and walk out in the street and everybody loved you walk in and they didn't get you. Not that they purposely did it, but they had their own issues. So I didn't call it anything. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, did you find yourself though? It sounds like you didn't necessarily censor your abilities, your sensitivity. Like nope. you you just kind of accepted it and kept going. But I'm imagining you did sort of like maybe not share with your mom anymore. Oh, I didn't share with
2: I've had always a part of me that can go mute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Painfully shy growing up. So I was quite comfortable deciding whether I spoke or I didn't. Mm. Whether I told or I didn't. Mm-hmm. I would look for what made me feel intuitively whether this is to be spoken or not spoken. I had a very strong feeling that some things aren't meant to be shared, some things are, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I trusted it. But that's also getting back a little older. In high school, I read everything I can get my hands on. Shakespeare loved it, and I thought, "Oh my God, yes! Hello, you understood." <laughs> and so I took not just solace but comfort in knowing that there are. Beings all over the planet forever that understood past the illusion, yes. past the smile. Oh, dear, I love you. Yeah, right. <laughs> the mask of disguise, I call it. Yes. And so I understood that when somebody wears a lot of masks, um, they can't cope. They can't handle much. So why give it to them? It's not mine to give then. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that's also empathy. It is knowing that the journey is different for all of us and different timing, rhythm, and it's not mine to control about them. Right. So I've always trusted that, pretty much always.
1: What an amazing... So I'm curious, for many of my guests, one of the challenges that they've experienced is that they, as empaths, would pick up the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, the sensations from the world around them, Mm -hmm. but they would feel them as if they were their own. They process it, everything as if it's their own. And it sounds like your experience was not that, that you did have a clear
2: sense of separation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If I had any question about a thought I had, is it my thought or the other's thought? I would just ask myself and I go, oh, it's the other
1: well, and you were saying, you know, you had the man. So you came
2: into this life with a guide. With help. With help. Right. And then he left when I was about 13 was the last time. And uh, approximately that I saw him, not frequently. And then at 31, he came back. Oh, my goodness. He said, I'll be here three years. I will teach you how to get direct knowledge all the time. And you're on your own after that from all of us. You go direct. I said, OK. Wow. Right. So I trusted him because I didn't at first know what was going on and then um when I realized who it was and that oh god you're the one I saw right and he told me who he was and all that I just sat back and went this is a fun ride <laughs> yeah a very fun ride I now, love can, this
1: can you pick up the phone and and like will he talk to you when you like at this point or is he completely just like you know you're on your own kid Um, but like, can you guys talk to each other if you just wanted to
2: say, Hey, or send him a card? What I do is just send love and thank him. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, because I think it's really important that I stay in what I have been shown, not only by him, but several came in at that time with him Mm -hmm. uh, and each one said the same thing. Three years, you're on your own. We'll send you out into the world. That's your job. Mm -hmm. You get stamped. That's your that's your job. (laughs) You're hired for that. I go well. It's all been fascinating so far. Now that I'm paying attention to what this is and really thinking this is interesting, and within a short time, I knew nobody in the field whatsoever. This is 1974, so I didn't know 75. I had no clue. And within six months, I was full time into it. But I also found within the first year, oh my God, I was in the thick of it with others who I never knew existed before that. So I understood what they were saying to me. We're bringing people to you from around everywhere for you to work with, study with, anything you want. And then you're on your own completely. Wow. And I thought, wow, this is fun. I mean, I've been in the Faraday cage that Andrea Puharic built with Adel Huxley. And Andrea lived uh, 10 minutes from me, and he invited me to his Monday night classes, and Marcel Vogel, and Dr. Edith Yerke, and Bob Monroe, the Monroe Institute. He lived in the same town. We all knew each other. This was a hotbed of the 70s in this way, West Coast and East Coast, you know, were mm-hmm. so funny. We were all the East Coast. Marcel flew in for the West Coast, um, the liquid crystallography. We had so much fun. And everything was wild. Everything was wild and crazy. And I thought, this is why wouldn't I do all this? I was busy. I had a new life. And I also could take care of my kids. I earned much more money than I ever did as a nurse. Once yeah. I got over the the fact that I had to tell people I wanted to charge. I was terrified of that. <laughs> I didn't know how to do it. I'd have them walk out open mouth and thanking me. And I'd forget to ask for money. When <laughs> So, so you so
1: so we sort of hit or kind of like we just jumped over a a big fence here in terms of you went into nursing and you had been doing nursing for a while, but then sort of discovered that you had well, basically your guide came back and not then no, okay,
2: but so, okay, So, so what was the time frame for like nursing? Got it. I was 16 yeah. when I entered nursing school. 18 when I graduated. Almost 19. Almost 17 when I ended. Yeah. I became a nurse, and my first job is when I could see that that gift was very useful. Yes. Okay. And so doctors ended up listening. I the first one was a wheel uh, somebody being wheeled on a stretcher, and the doctor hands me an order chart. I look at it and I go, "He doesn't have congestive heart failure. Why you write that down?" He said, "Why." I said, do an upper GI on him. He said, really? I said, absolutely. 19 years old, what a mouth. But normally I was quiet. Right, But When when you're helping people and you are sensitive to it, it's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'll say anything. And so he came back later that day and said, how did you know? I said, yeah, uh, enlarged hiatal hernia. He said, yes, but how did you know? I said, you don't see it. So that's when he just looked at me and told all the doctors you can go to her, she knows. And it was the first time I realized, maybe that's why I went into nursing. So I did a lot of different fields, but because of my, then we didn't know, congenital deformity, we had no tests on that, and I didn't know I had one. Um, shortly after that, within months of being a nurse, a 300-pound patient bunk herself on me to the floor, ruptured a disc, spent 11 out of 24 months in a hospital bed. So then emergency surgery and then a body brace, and they told me I had an unstable spine. So then after that, I started doing other, I was administrator for a hospital at age 20, crazy. Wow. wow. I loved it all. And I worked in every field. And then I turned to preemie and isolation because I couldn't lift adult. And um, a doctor came. I overheard a conversation in a cafeteria between nurses that there was an OBGYN doctor who, strangled the baby whose cord was wrapped around it and ended up killing the baby and lied. And I tried to get who the nurse who was a witness. And they said, they clammed up, they wouldn't tell me, but I heard the name of the doctor. About a few weeks go by and the doctor uh, sends me a a new baby, isolation nursery. And I call and I look at the chart and there's an order there that would kill about a thousand people, Uh, a dose that would kill instantly Mm me. Mm -hmm. If I gave it to Mm -hmm. an infant, it's all over. Mm -hmm. And so I called her. She was furious. She walked in. She scribbled her name. She didn't look at the chart. She just wrote right next to where I showed her. And she walked out. And I called my supervisor. I said, I need help. I went out. I made a copy of the original, put it in my bra, the copy, and said, now get the head of pediatrics here now. And I showed him the order. He said, I'll go talk to her. I said, "Not good enough. I was 20. I said, I have a copy of it hidden where you can't touch. And you're not just going to talk with her. We're going to do an investigation now. or know by tomorrow I go to newspaper. Good luck. Turns out she never had a medical license. That was by. Oh first my case. goodness. Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: So it's so fascinating that you ended up going in psychic detective and crime, basically, (laughs) as opposed to being a medical
2: intuitive because I am a medical intuitive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so you are doing, so do you do medical intuitive work as well? Okay. Because I was kind of like, it seems like it would have been a natural progression to go from nursing to being kind of like, you know, rockstar medical intuitive. Yeah, it was. That's,
2: um, My last job was in psychiatry in the South Bronx and we made history. I was able to break through catatonics 20 years and in less than 10 minutes, they're talking with me. Um, paranoid, schizophrenic, burning herself. I could tell her who, what, when, where, what the hallucination was about. In 10 days, we could break through. So we made medical history and we followed them for a year and I was offered the top research post in psychiatry in New York State. But I had already had my first husband attempt to murder me and I had emergency surgery after I almost died giving birth and um, I had surgery about a year later. So I had no discs in my low back. Mm. and Right. And then they had a machine. They called me in. It doesn't really matter, but they discovered I have the same anomaly that's many dwarfs have, mm-hmm. but I'm a normal size. So I had a very unstable spine. Mm-hmm. I still do. Mm-hmm. Occasionally I'm in a wheelchair. But most of the time, I could do yoga, I could dance, I can do whatever, and then I can't. So I got into all the holistic things back in the 60s and 70s and stayed there. I'm all organic and all that. So I've always yeah. been into the holistic, medical, intuitive work. That's yeah. my big. That's actually the work I do mostly. The sidebar was I can find a murderer or evidence. I can talk to the victim, the murdered victim. I can tell you how it was done. I can tell you where he shot her uh or whatever. And so but that was a sidebar always. Wow. Wow. Only it because it's more challenging mm-hmm. than most things, I found that it was a great teaching tool, not only for me, but for anybody. If you can do any of it at all, you can go back and do everything else so much easier. Say more about that. Laser focus, absolute laser focus with Chemistry of feelings as if you are there. Right? Mm-hmm, A blend mm-hmm. of astral projection, call it whatever you want out doesn't matter. Remote viewing, everything. Call mm-hmm. it anything you want, put all labels on it. It is absolute detailed laser focusing with the very darkest of things that humans do. Yeah. Which means that you need to keep those emotions on the side. You cannot touch into them. Yes. All. I mean, I could sit with people like everybody else who's empathetic and psychic and uh, sensitive to all of it. We can know that for other things, but try and do it when you are taking the murderer, the murdered victim's uh, information and processing it as it happened and explaining everything that they went through and knowing exactly what I take them and they become me temporarily. Yeah. yep. yep. Yeah, so I can go through the whole thing physically, and then I'm done with it completely. And then everything else is easy.
1: And so going back to the piece where you were talking about at the age of 31, your guides came back to you and he was like, I'm going to give you three years with 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 this help with training wheels, and then you're on your own. (laughs) Were you able to, like, Were they was that a point where they were giving you information so that you were not having to go through the living the process? Or no. were they teaching you how to live through the process? Both. Okay. So
2: there was a motorcycle accident, a 21-year-old, and I wanted to really be of service. So I laid down, and next thing I know, my guide said, I will show you how to go soul to soul because you cannot judge what's going on here. Mm -hmm. But as a soul, you will not tell them what to do or how to do anything. You will just be there open and have a conversation, no judgment. I said, okay. And so the feeling was permission granted to go ahead and do something I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. So, whether it's, you know, I, there's a part of me that has always looked at it all and said, okay, you're a figment of my imagination. Yeah, I'd hear back because I was a transmedium with him at some point. Mm-hmm. And I would argue, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so when I got the information soul to soul on that one, it was comfortable and it was valid and it uh, ended up being very useful. And so I thought, oh, okay. So he didn't do it for me. He would encourage me to know that I already knew how. Mm-hmm, 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 right? Yes. And yes. It's the same thing, I believe, that we all are told forever and ever, thousands of years, it's all inside. Yeah. And so he just kept reiterating, You got it. I'm not getting, you know, I'm not doing it for you. When you were a baby, I could point out something, give you language, but you were the one who saw it. You're the one who's doing it. And that right. that was the only time he did it is in Transmedium when he asked for a beer. I hate alcohol. I can't stand the smell of it. I don't use tinctures because I can't stand alcohol. It's hysterical. And when I heard that coming through me and I could see my body from a corner of the room, I'm going, Don't you dare put alcohol in my mouth. I couldn't even taste it. Yeah. And I thought, Oh, that's interesting. At that time, we had multiple personality disorder. Now we have a new name for it. I went, DID, Dissociative
1: Identity Disorder. Right. Yeah.
2: Maybe I am him and me. Mm-hmm. And he he'd go, No, if anything, you're a figment of my imagination. And uh, I So, do I ever know what all things are? No. No.
1: Do I care? I'm happy. <laughs> Well, and as you were speaking, you know, one of the things that I've noticed so often with, with when I'm working with people, because I do a lot of work where I lead people to places, but then I give them the opportunity to find their own answers. And I have seen so many times the thing that inhibits people is not that they don't know the answer, it's that they doubt the answer. They get the answer immediately. It comes like, I mean, it comes like, you know, lightning fast. And then they second guess it then they go, that's too easy. And, and it's just, it's so interesting how conditioned we are to deny what we know in this culture. What a, so, you know, you are talking about the, and I'm really struck by, and this is something I've talked about in the show a number of times, and I've talked about a lot myself in podcasts and other things about the distinction between the empath who feels it all Versus the psychic who perceives it, but has that barrier, that sense of separation. And I'm really struck by how your unique gifts gave you this ability to experience, like run the movie and experience the entire death of somebody, somebody's death without getting sucked into the emotional quagmire without necessarily getting into the, you know, kind of like finding yourself in that lower octave of fear, but just to be able to witness this process to be of service. And I know that there are so many people who would be so terrified of doing that because of their vulnerability to getting sucked into the emotion. How did you keep that the emotions on the shelf? Like you were saying, you'd keep them to the
2: side. How did you keep the emotions to the side? The same way I attempted to protect my soon-to-be-born child. It's too important. It isn't a matter of not being sensitive to it or having huge emotions. It is what my first nursing teacher taught me when I said, how, Mrs. Norman, how? Are you so calm through everything? And she said, well, put all your emotions, your troubles, anything in the bag, go do your service. You Mm -hmm. want to pick them up afterwards, pick them up afterwards. So I have had 105 fever after searching for a serial killer. I've had tears galore. I still do, but that's fine because the work is the work. It is the same work that every good healer of anything who sits by the bedside. I've sat by the bedside of my two best friends. I've lived with them, taking care of them as they lay dying. It's not my tears they need. Right, right, right. Nor is the murder victim need my fear for them. Yeah. Or my fear of it. Right. What they need for me is absolute 1000% love, compassion, strength as a haven. And so for me, I am a haven for those souls on earth or not. I never got justice. I had been raped by a stranger. I had been at gunpoint, attacked and poisoned. No, thank you. And almost murdered by a husband. My first years were crazy. Mm-hmm. I never got justice, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful gift to, to insist everybody I work with needs justice. So yes. I sat on the phone. I've done lawsuits with people. I've helped them. I've done my own lawsuits against the, uh, the American Disabilities Act when I was in a wheelchair against somebody. The federal court won everything. I am fierce. I you know. are fierce. I am. Fears. <laughs> yeah. Because I think you have to be careful not to feed your own need when there is something out there you can never find or help if you're feeding your own need at that moment. I couldn't ever get near a killer if I think of him or her as a killer. Mm-hmm. But if I think of them as a soul who's so disconnected, his, his body, mind, personality, this lifetime, so disconnected. And so when that occurs, he's just a soul I'm connecting soul to soul with. And then he could tell me anything. I sat with a hitman in my room and threw him out and told him to go to a police station. He did. Yeah. So if I was scared, he could have either killed me or he would have left and that would have been it. Nothing would have been accomplished. But I believe we're here to serve, not just say that, but mm-hmm. do that and certainly do it. Well, good people, even the objective, a conscientious objector, who they made a film of during the war—that's that served in the war and carried mm-hmm. out bodies in the medical fields and, mm-hmm. and never lifted a gun. Yes, what does that take? Right, that's exactly the same thing. Yeah, right. That's empathy, empathy, and oh my God, sensitivity galore. Who's willing to risk his life again and again? Serve lovingly, lovingly. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of the crime victims and what they went through that I worked with. Do I really want them to have to not have a tremendous amount of love from as many people as possible? Yeah. So they, yeah,
1: Well, crazy. and it also seems to me that, you know, some of this is also about the distinction between the illusion that death and murder mm-hmm. is the end and where somebody can get sort of poisoned by the fear Versus when you're holding space for their soul and honoring that you're here, you're okay, you're fine. Yeah, that sucked and you're okay. Like that, that there's this way in which you're seeing above the illusions.
2: And yes. you know what? You don't get answers if you don't do that because their hurt, their shame or their, their horror at it will not be able to speak or share any information that's clear. They have to be calmer. They have to feel you're safe and they can trust you. So yeah, it's the same thing sitting in a room with people who've had terrible things happen. They've never told anybody. What did they tell us? It's the same exact thing. Well, in that capacity, I'm really loving
1: the message in this and the importance of being able to hold the space without emotionally engaging in it in a way that, because the thing is, Whenever we engage emotionally and we start turning on our feelings about it, it goes from being about them to about us. And we cease to be of service in those places. So, yeah, I, uh, I'm just, I'm just really, I'm loving how, and I've been really seeing lately how the capacity to honor emotion is certainly a very important thing, but when emotion when emotion trumps everything else when it it's right. when it when it becomes the thing that it really does end up being this like it just gums up the works horribly a lot of the time
2: yeah well it's the difference between being impulsive and serendipitous yeah right it mm. is also that uh, we yeah. have to know what our emotions are and we need to express them, but there's a time and place. There's a time and place. There really is. And I I would never have a crime victim share with me, not only how they were murdered, but who murdered them, if they didn't feel safe with me getting, you know, as Garth Brooks says, standing in the fire. I love that song. Don't stand outside the fire, get inside. And the fire is really the heart on fire with love and passion for caring, for service. And I think that's what it takes in a a way that actually brings peace. I mean I people ask how you live with all that. The the police I've worked with, the detectives say how do you because I've done hundreds of cases. And I go, I sleep very well and I have a wonderful time and I can I have humor and fun in my life and sweetness and all kinds of things and um because I know what life is. It's a mess. <laughs> it's always been since the first cave days. Since upright, since before upright, this is just life. This is no promise of anything. Benediction Apaches, no promise of tomorrow on this earth. But it's also no promise of anything on this earth. We don't know how long we'll live. We, you know, you're born, you can die in minutes. So yeah. I, I'm going, no, there's a job to do. If we're giving service, we give service. As a nurse, you don't go in and cry with the patient who's having a lot of pain. Right, right. Well, and I worked for many years before, um,
1: before I pivoted into doing all of my work with teaching and writing, I was serving as a, I did, I was a tattooer doing it as a healing art for like 20 years. And I learned really clearly that if I engaged in and indulged in the pain that another person was feeling, it only made it worse. And if I just held the space and was like, yep, sucks to be you. (laughs) Like you paid me for this. Let's just move through this and just really let it be like, I understand you're feeling pain. That's fine, and I'm not going to date I'm not going to engage with your pain. I'm not going to I'm not going to freak out about your pain because when I first started doing it and I was a bit more codependent and they would be uncomfortable, I would get uncomfortable about the fact that they were uncomfortable. And then what they would then, and then they would freak out because they would think something was wrong because I was worried about them, and so they would it would just escalate. And I learned so clearly, like if I can just be like, we're just doing our thing. We're just doing what you agreed to. (laughs) Let's just make this happen. Yep, you're uncomfortable. Sucks to be you. Breathe through it. It was such a different (laughs) experience for people than if I worried about the pain. And I think, you know, whether it is getting a tattoo, being in a hospital, or being on the other side of a murder, all of these are things where we can facilitate the process so much better
2: when we do not engage with and indulge the fear. I I think of, it's so true, obviously. I had a group that I was training many years ago. It's be Psychic Detectives. And I was asked to go to a prosecutor's office. And one of the group would tend to break down in tears all the time with, I couldn't trust her going. No. So I wouldn't take her. Everyone no. else understood. Right. But your own emotions aside, because you can't be clear anyhow. I mean, the chemistry of emotions is very different than the chemistry of being in tune with the energy and the safe space, sacred space that you're making. Right. And there's transference going on constantly. So your shields aren't up if you're emotional. Yes. Yes. Your shields are not up. You know, people look at me and they go, it's a boomerang. Lower energies, just boomerang off of high frequency. So if I am engaging in lower frequencies of, oh, my God, I can't stand it. How they go? Uh That's not about I'm more sensitive than you. That is about uh, <laughs> I want to show how important my feelings are. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Try and tell a rape victim that. I've sat with everybody in anything, people who just lost their daughter the day before. How dare I show? Oh, how horrible. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I could never have the daughter come through that way. Right. But I could. And we had, we actually had moments where despite the deep grief, I remember the mother can laugh for a moment. Yes. Oh my yes. God, that's her. And I yeah. go, Yeah. I've had the experience a number of
1: times where when they come through the strongest, it is often the most funny, lighthearted, like they're like, yes. just because they're on the other side doesn't mean they lost their sense
2: of humor. Sometimes they find it finally. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. It it In the immediacy of trauma, they're working it through. But you know what? They get calm right away when they find that I'm not afraid for them. Right. Right. So when they're on the other side or when they're here, if I'm not afraid for you, which I think is true of all healers, you know, that's the whole piece of it of I will stand in the fire with you. I'm not afraid of your pain. I'm not afraid of any of it with you. This is okay. This is life. And we're going through it together, whether it's on this side or that side. I am your friend. I am going to always be your friend. I make a commitment that I love all of them. Completely love, and I'm your friend. And I've been to death row, and I've told them the same thing. When one guy looked at me, he said, "Aren't you the one who helped find me?" I go, "Yeah, I am. How are you doing?" <laughs> I go, "Wow." He showed me drawings of his kids that they did, and I said, "That's beautiful. You're so thoughtful and so messed up all at once. Isn't that fascinating?" <laughs> you know, I just sit there be a friend. Maybe then the brokenness they can look at, and maybe yes. the tragedy that happened. Two people, because it's constantly being passed down generationally or ancestorally, a rippling effect everywhere. Exactly. Why, you know, why be immersed in? I think good empathy and good empathetics and sensitivity to everything uh, can bring about such great rewards spiritually in really sending that rippling effect. I always think of the Tibetan monks 14,000 feet up with wet cloths around them praying for peace in the world because they know how important it is. It's not just a thought. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's real. And Mm I feel the same way about our work. It's soul to soul. And it's kind of funny. The word psychic comes from the Greek word meaning soul. Mm -hmm. It is nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so we're clear when we allow everything we have been gifted with. And I think artists can be that way. Fumers can be that way. Yeah. Anybody can be soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And call it psychic. It's an interpretation. That's all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm really struck by how we get to do the work at this much deeper level when we kind of get out when we kind of get out of our own way. When, you know, that when we get and when we get out when we look at it as this it, just this experience of beholding and just being present with what is. I'm just I'm so loving this conversation and I'm loving the direction that we've gone in because I wasn't necessarily expecting to be having a conversation about fear. But in a way, it feels to me like a lot of the sort of the theme, the through line that we're talking about is. How do we do the work without succumbing to fear? And, you know, I was I think that right now we're in a period on this planet where so many people are getting so sucked into the quagmire of fear. And it's really it's we're it's epidemic right now. And and when you suggest lifting above it, as you were speaking about the Buddhist monks who are praying for peace, who are stepping past, you know, like that that it's the work, this is the work. There's sort of people who talk about, you know, like, like somehow one of the sayings, I don't know if you've ever seen the meme of it, like if, you know, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Like if you're not having an intense emotional reaction, you're not paying attention. And my response to that is actually, I'm working my ass off to not have an emotional reaction to this because it is not conducive. It is not helpful. And I choose love. I choose peace. I choose calmness. I choose to be grounded. I choose gratitude. I choose these things because of the, as much Despite the problem and because of the problem, not in lieu of the problem or as a way to bypass the problem. And I think, you know, that is just such an incredibly important piece. It's like we do this from love to honor the person who died, not to pretend, not to, not to bypass or like fluff it over.
2: There is a thing that might be useful for others that I discovered many decades ago and I started going, oh, right. And that's when I was taught soul to soul. Judge the actions, not the person. Judge the actions, not the soul. And that's how I can get pretty ticked off at something. Notice it's an appropriate action, but that doesn't mean I'm condemning the person or condemning the soul. Mm-hmm. And that's how I can reach a murderer. Yeah, yeah. That And that's how I can talk to people on death row. You're gonna be kidding if you think that this is okay. It's I've talked to pedophiles and rapists, and I'm going. Well, obviously your action is worse than most. Right. But terrified people make terrible mistakes. Right. Right. Well, and
1: as you were saying, you know, we're talking about you know a legacy of illusion that you know in some of the channeling oh, work that I've been doing, we're talking a five thousand year can that's been kicked down the road. We've been we've been. Like there is trauma that has been pushed forward and forward and forward and forward and forward. And it's almost like, well, it's completely understandable why somebody would do what they did. If you look at the story, if you look at the epigenetics, if you look at the lot, like if you look at how far back it goes, it's sort of like, okay, I get it. This is, you know, you were backed into, this is, this was your, this was the option you had here. It's an unfortunate option that you decided to do it instead of picking up the phone or or going
2: to a movie or going to an AA meeting. But hey, it really is the difference between staying conscious and choosing or just unconsciously uh, colliding with things. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people don't have the wherewithal on how to get started. So actually, we are coming up to that
1: moment or that point in time. but But before I ask you, If there was anything else to you want to comment about, I'd actually really love to ask you the question, okay, so
2: where do we get started? We never know why somebody decides now. Sometimes it's that moment in time where somebody actually gives them a different view of themselves. Sometimes it's a sharp view, you know, that kind of cuts through the crap. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a view of a better self-image that they didn't know they had. And I think that that's part of it. We are all part of that connecting and making a difference. I can look back at people who've made a difference in my life both ways and know that at one moment in time, you decide that you liked that one. And how did they show me that? And you get curious. So curiosity that there's actually more to you. And I don't know, you know, at the end of every time I work with some psychiatrists weekly, uh, with all their clients, at the end, we would look and go, chicken or egg. We have no yeah. clue why. Right. Why do some people. On the other hand, I believe ultimate an ultimatum happens in their soul when they are struggling to break through. And suddenly they go to the right person or suddenly they're in the right situation and something happens to wake them up. And I don't know that we'll ever have an answer to all of it or to say, this rule book on it. You can do this and you will, you know, know. Uh, I think that it takes the right moment of desire to make a difference in one's own life, you know. And nobody knows where that comes from or why. Sometimes mm-hmm. the absolute frustration with their own life or the addictions that are out there, everything. Yeah, yeah. And why do some clean up and some don't? Why yeah. do some people become you know, like uh, the old movie, great, you know, black and white movie, two brothers. One grows up to be a religious, whatever, good soul, helpful, serves the world, and the other grows up to be a killer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've done so many studies on why. Right, right. I
1: mean, and that's where grace, I think, comes in. You know, it's like there is just that point of some of us are granted grace that others are not. And, I Yeah, it's like you can have a family where you've got like people, twins raised, you know, the two brothers raised in the same exact environment, exactly. same exact experience, same exact genetic, like let's say even identical twins. One chooses one path, one chooses the other. And it always just, I, I for me, it brings me back down. It always, this brings me back to deep gratitude because I'm just so incredibly yep. grateful
2: I'm with that you. I made
1: the choice to not be, you know, to you know, sort of to not, basically, to not be a dick, <laughs> like you know, it's to go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Nancy, we are at that moment of like, oh my god, I cannot believe how how fast, and I really cannot believe how fast the time has gone by. This conversation has just been so soul filling. This has been nourishing. This has been food for my soul. And I'm so grateful to have been talking with you. Before I let you go, the three, you know, sort of there's the three things. First off, what, if anything, have we not spoken about that you're like, I need to say this thing?
2: Hmm. I would suggest that the one thing a lot of empathetic, sensitive people might not do is allow their own dream to become foremost in them because we are the caretakers of the world. Reach, Preach. Preach. <laughs> Which in some ways, I wonder if this leads us to the next
1: piece, which is, as, as I was telling you before, and if you've listened to any of the episodes, you know, the way that this works is that I do sincerely believe that podcasts are kind of exist outside of time. They, they, they exist in perpetuity for many, many years after they've been recorded. But I also believe that they have an ability to ripple back into the past and that, you know, the ribbon of time that this digital file is on can fold over on itself. And I really believe that we, you, we can go back and convey a message to younger Nancy. So if there was a message that young Nancy needed, two things, (laughs) when are you going back to like, who is it that needs the message and what is the message that you're going to give her?
2: I read every Nancy Drew book. I was about 10. I read Florence Nightingale's autobiography or biography, and I read Clara Barton. And I decided I wanted to be Nancy Drew, Clara Barton, and Florence Nightingale right then.
1: Did you you ever read The Nurse Detective? There was like a whole series. Her name was like Sherry something. There was like around the same time, I... There was there was a series similar to Nancy Drew, but there was a whole series of nurse books. No, I didn't anyway, know about them. Yeah.
2: yeah, so going back, um, all I want to tell her is you did it. <laughs> you did everything you wanted <laughs> and, you had, and more and more. <laughs> so uh, oh, I am right at home being me forever. That's fine.
1: Oh, my goodness. Nancy, this really... Has been so delicious. My, I just, this has been so, it's been so good and, and, and really a refreshing perspective. I really appreciate everything that you've been saying. I could talk with you for hours. I mean, you, I'm, sh- you have so many stories that you could tell us. And, uh, you know, this is, I just feel like we've scratched the tip of the iceberg with this. And we didn't even get anywhere near the second book. So I would love to bring you back <laughs> to have another conversation about nature and animals and communicating and
2: all of that. Thank you. Um, so how do people get in touch with you? They get in touch usually through my website, which is my name, mm-hmm. Nancy Orlin O-R-L-E-N, Weber with one B, mm-hmm. uh, is my website. And I have a calendar there for classes, workshops or anything that's coming up. And I do mentoring, I do private mentoring one-to-one and small classes only because I like to get to know everybody. Yes. Right there Uh, with you, sister. Right there with you. I made a decision after doing a very large group many years ago and I went, they may have gotten something out of it, but I'm not satisfied. I don't get to know them. I love getting to know people.
1: If I can't keep track of who's missing from a
2: class, I know I have too many people in the class. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. That's how they can get in touch is through email. Nancy at Nancy at Weber at gmail.com. Nancy at nancyorlandweber at gmail.com or whatever else. Lightwing Center, the light and sky, wing of a bird center mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is also at Gmail. And that's my holistic freedom church. We ordain holistic practitioners. That's my other work. Oh my goodness. Nancy. One of my other jobs.
1: Yes. Yes. And for those of you who are readers, there is um, there is there are Nancy's two books, All Nature Speaks and The Life of a Psychic Detective. Um, All of this will be included in the show notes for all of you guys. And, uh, you know, so check out Nancy. She's a wealth of knowledge. This has been
2: such a good conversation. Thank you so much, Jen. I love talking with you you all hello sister (laughs) yeah thank Thank you oh thank thank you much appreciated
0: as we come to the end of this episode i'd love to hear what you're taking from this show please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments in the show notes you'll find a link to grab your copy of my empathic safety guide Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And, while you're there, please, subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then, join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.